Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the, the opportunity to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we see this and, and look over it. We ask the Spirit to be here with us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 30. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that walk to go down into Egypt, and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh, and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame, and, your, and the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion. For his princes were at Zo Zoan, and his ambassadors came to Hanes, and they were all ashamed of a, a people that could not profit them, nor be a help, nor profit, but a shame, and also a reproach. The burden of beasts of the south and into the land of trouble and anguish, from, thence came the, from whence came the young lion, the young and old lion, the viper and the fiery flying serpent. They will carry their riches upon the shoulders of young donkeys and their treasures upon the bunch of, hunches of camels to a people that shall not profit them. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose thereof have I cried concerning this. Their strength is to sit still. All right, so God here is giving the people a rebuke because they're not seeking him. It's in very flowery language, but it says, Woe to the rebellious children. And I kind of you know, look at this and think about this whole idea of rebellious, stubborn. The Jews have been stubborn and have been called stubborn. Uh, in uh, the Pentateuch, Moses called them more than once a rebellious, stubborn, stiff-necked people. Uh, and that rebellious and stiff-necked, stubborn is carried through the scriptures. Uh, they just refuse to trust God. He says, Woe to that rebellious children, says the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me. And this is something we as Christians have to be careful of. When we look for counsel, that we don't go after the counsel of the world. That we really seek God's counsel. And even more importantly for us as Christians, that we give godly counsel and not counsel of the world. And I've heard it even in churches. People will say things that are worldly counsel and not biblical counsel. And it's, and I've probably done it myself on plenty of occasions, you know, giving counsel that's worldly counsel and not God's counsel. We need to be very careful about that. Because God's counsel is not the same as the world's counsel. Uh, the world's counsel will be avoid problems. You know, and that's our instinct. You know, if we have a problem, Run from it, <laughs> hide from it, get away from it. You know, maybe not run from it, but get away from it. You know, you know, and God sometimes says, I've sent this for you so that you will learn. I want you to learn from this hardship. I want you to learn to trust me. I was listening to a pastor this afternoon on the way home that was talking about Hagar. If you know who Hagar is, Hagar was the Egyptian slave that Sarah gave to Abraham to, to bring a, produce a child. And Ishmael came from Hagar. Well, when she got pregnant, Sarah got angry with her and started beating her and abusing her and all these things. So she ran away. And she, she meets the angel of the Lord, which would be Jesus. And he says, go back. <laughs> okay. 
uh, I've blessed you. Your, your child is going to be the, you know, have many nations come out of him. He's going to have, he's going to be fruitful. But he says, go back to Sarah. And this is, you know, he didn't, God didn't promise her that, that Sarah was no longer going to be mean to her, that Sarah was going to, you know, like her. Uh, she didn't, wasn't told anything. He just told her to go back. How many times in your life has God said, just stay where you are or go back to what you're running from? We look at Elijah. On Mount Carmel, Carmel, he defeats 450 priests of Baal. He has them executed. Jezebel says, I'm coming to get you, and he runs away. When he gets to where he runs away, God meets him, and basically it's all in flower language, but says, what are you doing down here? You're supposed to be back there where I told you to be. Get back where, get back where you're supposed to be. Where he's supposed to be has a queen that's threatening to kill him. And yet God sends him back and says, I've got a plan. I know what I'm doing. You know, we need to be careful because sometimes we run from our problems. We take the world's counsel. And the world basically says, you know, kind of what the name and claim that Christianity says, that everything's supposed to be good, and if it's not good, something's wrong. And it really is the way of the world. If anything's going wrong in your life, there's something wrong with life. And God says, I'm teaching you. Are we taking a godly perspective or a world's perspective? He goes on to say in, in this first verse, and, they, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin unto sin. God covers us with the blood of Jesus Christ, which covers our sin and makes it unknown. What we try to do outside of that, we try to hide our sin. Now, if you ever tried to hide your sin, from, especially from God, it doesn't work. You might try to hide it from others, but God says our sin will be shouted from the rooftop. You know, our sins will be known eventually. If nothing else, they'll be known when we stand before the judgment seat, but God also, in our world, brings out our sins. Our sins are always discovered. If somebody lies, they may think they're getting away with it for a long time, but the, the truth will come out and they will be found out to be liars. If you know, people who have affairs eventually get caught. Something happens and they get caught. This always happens. We cannot cover our sins for long periods of time and when we do try to cover our sin, we end up adding sin to sin. David didn't go to war like he was supposed to as a king, went out on his rooftop, saw Bathsheba, decided to look at Bathsheba instead of turning away from Bathsheba, then started finding out, well, who is she? You know, I'm going to be curious. I'm going to go for it. At any point, he could have stopped his sin. He could have really stopped it by going and being where he was supposed to be. Then he sends for her. Then he has sex with her. Then he tries to trick Uriah into coming back and, and sleeping with his wife so he'd think that David's child was his child. Then he kills Uriah. You know, sin after sin after sin after sin. How many times have we gotten ourselves in trouble for just the same thing? We start with something little. A lie, a deception, uh, you know, doing something we're not supposed to, and then we just sin upon sin upon sin. And it comes to a point where almost you get to the place where, what can I do? I can't, you know, once this comes out in the open, I'm going to be ruined. 
And God says, yes, it's got to come out in the open. And you will be ruined for a while, but I will make it good. And this is the whole idea. It says you, you're taking counsel, but it's not mine. You're, taking, you're covering, covering your sin, but not by my spirit of forgiveness. And it says, you want to go down to Egypt and have not asked of, at my mouth. Now, we've talked about this. Egypt is always a picture of the world. Now, yes, there's a literal Egypt that they're going to, but Egypt in the scriptures for spiritual purposes is that they're going to the world for their answer and their help and not to God. Uh, you know, all through the Pentateuch, the children of Israel wanted to go back to Egypt, go back to the world. God, we don't like the way you do things, so we're, we want to go back to the world. And they forget what the world was like. Sometimes we as Christians do the same thing. I want to go back to the world. I know I didn't like the world before I got saved and it led me to getting saved, but God, I just want to go back. I remember the onions and the leeks and the, <laughs> and the melons and all the good stuff. Yes, I was in slavery and being beat up, but you know, there were some good things. And that's, we as humans have very short memories. You know, we forget the bad things usually and only remember the good. It's like when anybody who's thinking about the good old days. Now, no matter how old you were, the, the good old days were something in the past, where everything was good, nothing was bad. You know, if you live through it and you really remember it and think about it, there was no such thing as the good old days. No matter where you're at, had bad things going on. And, you know, and this is what they're saying. You're going back to Egypt, but you didn't ask me. I didn't tell you to go to Egypt. I didn't tell you to go get Egypt's help, is what God says. And you're looking to strengthen yourself with the strength of fear, Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. And how many times do we do that in our own life? You know, well, you know, I'm going to go help get these people. They, they, they'll help me. They'll protect me. They'll be my strength. You know, that drug dealer, all he wants to do is get me back into drugs, but, you know, it was a nice guy mostly. <laughs> uh, and that's basically what he's saying here, that, you know, why do you want to trust in the world? And unfortunately, and I say this so many times, we all tend to do this. Go back to the world. You know, God, I know you say to trust you for our finances and honor you, but my credit card is right here. I've got my credit card. I'll make it through the month. I don't know how I'll pay it at the end of the month, but I've got my credit card. I'm going to make it through the month. And God says, are you trusting me? And then, because you've spent so much money on the credit card, now you tell God you can't give him his tithes and offerings because you're busy paying off the credit card that you trusted instead of God in the first place. You know, uh, and this can be any number of things. I use a credit card because that's one of the ones that we, especially here in America, we, we have a habit of pull out the plastic, you know, get through another, get through another month. And, uh, you know, where is our trust? In the world or in God? And oftentimes it's in the world. It really is, oftentimes in the world. It says, For his princes were at Zoan, and his ambassadors came, came to Hanes, and they were ashamed of a people that, who could not, that could not profit them, nor be helped, nor profit, but a shame and also a reproach. In other words, you're going to go to Egypt, and they're not going to help you. They're just going, you're, you know, you're not a prophet to them, and they're not a prophet to you. And when we put our trust in the world, ultimately, it's a losing battle. The world drags us down. We don't get any benefit out of the day because we're, we're, we're being drugged down. And we find out that there's no strength in it. 
The children of Israel came out of Egypt because there was no, nothing good there for them. And then just a short time later, they're going, let's go back to Egypt. You know, we don't want to be out here. We're trusting in God. And, you know, I don't want to be too harsh on them because we probably would have been the same thing. You know, God, I'm thirsty. I want to go back to Egypt. At least I knew where the well was. God, I'm hungry. You know, uh, do I really want to trust in you to provide manna every day and, and quail every night? You know, go back to Egypt. I knew where the field was. I knew where I could go pick my stuff real easy. Trusting God is probably the hardest thing we do as Christians, to just sit back and trust him. Mostly because he likes to wait till the last moment to give us our, our desires. The people of Israel had to get up every morning and hope there was manna on the ground for them to, get, to go out and pick up. Now, God was very faithful. He gave them manna every morning and every night for 40 years. And yet they always seem to go out. You know, we see this attitude of surprise. Oh, there's manna. You know, God, God provided for us again. But we do the same thing in our Christian walk. God, you've taken care of me. You've taken care of me. You take, oh, oh, wow, God, you took care of me again. Oh, wow, God, you took care of me again. Oh, wow, God, you, you did it again. And we always end up tending to be surprised that God meets our needs like he tells us he's going to do. And this is what he's saying. You're going to Egypt thinking they're going to be your prophet, and there's no value there. There's nothing there. Don't go down there. And it says, the burden of the beast of the south into the land of the trouble and anguish, and whence came the young and old lions, the viper, the fiery flying fiery serpents, and they carry their riches upon the shoulders of young donkeys and their treasures upon their bunches, the hunches of the camels to a people that shall not profit them. In other words, they're taking all your money, but you're not getting anything out of it. We get things from the world, and all it does when we go to the world is it costs. Things cost us. Reputation, desire, pleasure. You know, we go to the world, and it's a fading vanity of trust. Uh, and, you know, we think we're going to get something out of it. And who knows? I mean, it's different for everybody. I get fame, I get fortune, I get status, I get position, you know, whatever it might be, but it's all fleeting. It can be taken away in a moment by God. Satan can take it away if he just wants to break us, break us. Uh, it just, and we find out that it's empty anyway. You know, that's what Solomon says, you know, all this wealth is empty, all this fame is empty, all this, everything, everything is vanity. And this is what we find out when you listen to people who have stuff and you listen carefully to them, you'll hear them say, basically, it's empty, it's, it's vain, it's not what I thought. You know, and we, how do we know that? Well, you can listen to their words, you can also listen to what they do. When they're strung out on drugs and alcohol because their fame was not enough, their money was not enough, and they can't handle it. It's all empty. When you seek after the world, it's empty. And this is what, this is what he's saying. For the Egyptians shall help in vain, <laughs> and to no purpose. Therefore I have cried concerning this. Their strength is to sit still. Where is our strength? Most of the time it is just to sit still and wait for God. And, you know, I've always, I keep saying this, waiting for God does not mean I don't do anything, okay? It means that I'm doing things, but I'm listening to God. I'm not in panic mode. 
shared with you many times when I was living by faith, God always delivered. It was always, almost always at the last moment. And it many times came in the shape of extra jobs. Go do this job, go do that job. You know, here's a job for you to do. Here's a job for you to do. And his provisions came on time and meant that I had to go out and do things. You know, if we just sit there waiting for God to pour blessings over our heads, it's not likely to happen. On occasion, he might do something like that, but he says, here, here's your provision. God created man to work. You know, that's what Adam and Eve were created for. Their job before the fall of man was to tend the garden. And I've always said, I don't know how hard it was to tend a perfect garden, but that was their job. Yeah. Uh, but we were created to work. We weren't created just to go lounge out on a couch all day long and just say, okay, feed me, give me stuff. That was not what we were created to do. Uh, and so we see this picture that God is putting out. In verse 8, go now, write it before them in a table and note it in a book that it may be for the time to come for forever and ever that this is a rebellious people lying children children that cannot hear the law of the lord which say to the seers see not and to the prophets prophesy not unto us right things speak to us smooth things and prophesy deceits get get you out of the way turn aside out of the path cause the holy one of israel to cease from before us Wherefore, thus saith the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversions and stay therein, therefore this iniquity shall be to you a breach already ready to fall, swelling out of the high wall, whose breaking sometimes suddenly at an instant. And he shall break it as the breaking of the potter's vessel that is broken to pieces, and he shall not spare, so that there shall not be found in the bursting of it a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water withal out of the pit. All right. So God says, Isaiah, I want you to write these words down. And he says, write them on a tablet, engrave them on a tablet, and noted in a book. All right, so you got a tablet for its, per, you know, for its long-lasting, you know, and a book, which was probably a scroll, even though it says book here was probably a scroll, and scrolls tend to wear out over time. But he says, write it so that it is going to be with them forever. They're going to be able to remember this, and this is something that God will says. He's God says Himself, He is writing a book of our sins and our and our and our good works and everything, he's going to remember them and he's going to reward them accordingly. And he tells Isaiah, write this stuff down so it'll be forever. And then he says, that, write that this is a rebellious people, again, this idea of stubborn, a lying children, <laughs> children that will not hear the law of the Lord. Have you been in a place where you will not hear the the law of the Lord is a Christian. I hope it wasn't long. Okay. But before we're saved, how often are we in this place where we will not, you know, not cannot, but will not hear his law? And if we get so far from God on our sin, we'll get to the place that for a time we will not hear his word. 
David, after his sin with Bathsheba and the, and the murder of Uriah, went for over a year where he did not really hear God's word because he was not interested in it because when you're deep in sin, you do not want to hear God's word because it always tells you how much sin, what a sinner you are. And it's convicting. And if you're walking away from God, the last thing you want to do is hear a message or be, read the Bible or be around other Christians who, you know, remind you what you're missing. And it says, you, they, will not hear, they will not hear the Lord. And then even worse, they say to the seers, see not, do not see God's vision. Don't tell me God's vision. Don't, don't share God's vision. And to the prophets, you say, prophesy not unto us right things and speak unto us smooth things, prophecies of deceits. And this whole idea of smooth, flattering, flattering words. This is what the world wants to hear. And unfortunately, Christians who don't want to grow have the same idea. Oh, don't give me any vision of what God wants. I don't want to have no visions. Don't, don't tell me what God wants. Don't tell me what he sees. And don't tell me what he says. Just tell me good, good thoughts. I want to hear good things. Don't tell me that, that we go to hell. Don't tell me that, that sin has consequence. Don't tell me that, that, that I'm living in sin. Just tell me what a good person I am and how, good, how God wants to bless me and, and give me good stuff. Don't tell me about the bad things that might happen in, in, through disobedience. And unfortunately, we, we've got lots of churches that are basically telling their pastors and their leaders, don't teach us truth, just, just give us good things. You know, don't dare tell us that we're sinners. Don't dare tell us that we're going to go to hell if we don't accept Jesus Christ. Don't dare tell us that all things work together for good. That means that bad things can be can be good in our life. Don't dare tell us, you know, anything. Just tell us, tell us all these good things. We have so many churches out there and so many pastors out there that are following this verse. They're telling flattering, deceitful things. They're, they're not giving out a vision. And this is important. What is a vision for the church? Where do we want to go? This is why we introduced Sunday, the whole idea of let's start praying for people to get saved and get the names of fir the first names of individuals so that we can start praying and see people get saved. I have a vision to see a revival come to this town, a revival come to this, this state. And again, all the names don't have to be from, you know, from this town or anything, but we're going to just start praying and watch God work mir miraculous changes in people's lives. And I'm looking forward to seeing what God's going to do. Um, you know, to see what God is going to do, a vision, a vision of what will God do. And by going verse by verse through the Bible, we talk about sin all the time. <laughs> and don't, and don't, hide, don't, don't shy away from it. Jesus spoke things all the time that drove people away. You know, Jesus would get a crowd together and then he'd say something and half the crowd would leave, you know, because he, they didn't like what he said. Because he called sin a sin. He said, you know, are you willing to follow God? He challenged people. Are you going to do things God's way or are you going to do it the world's way? And whenever he did that, people left. You know, who is this crazy man that keeps saying these, you know, that he's the only way to heaven, that he's going to die, uh, you know, that we've got to forgive our brothers, you know, we've got to love those who love us. You know, when the Roman soldier compels you to carry his stuff for a mile, you've got, he says, take it too. Who, who is this crazy guy? Why would we do these things? And they, would, and they would leave. And, you know, we look at this sometimes and, 
you know, we have churches where pastors will only say good things because why? They're afraid that people will leave their church if they call sin a sin, if they're even Christians. Some of them, some of them aren't even Christians. Some of them are just literally afraid. They've gotten used to the lifestyle of a 10,000, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 member church because that means they get paid real well and the other staff gets paid real well and they're afraid that if they say something that God says about things, that they'll lose membership in their church and they won't get the money coming in, which means they won't get their paychecks. And that's a sad place to be. But I want to be gentle with them because some of them aren't doing it on purpose. They're, you know, many of them think they're doing okay. You know, they're, they're, well, they're in church, they're hearing something about the Bible. Uh, and that's a scary place to be that, you know, if you're really a pastor, you want your people to grow. You want to see, challenge them to grow in the spirit. Not just, well, maybe someday, you know, at least they're in the right place. They're, they're in a Bible, a church where I give three verses, you know, three verses a week to them, but don't really talk about the verses. And the verses I give them are all the good verses that tell them how, God, how good God is. I'm never going to tell them about how bad sin is and that oh, sin yeah. leads to punishment. And my personal belief is that lifting up God's word is the most important thing we can possibly do. Because that is what's going to change lives. Lifting up his word changes lives. We get his word in us. It changes the way we think. And it's the most powerful tool we have to train our spirit to do what God wants. Without God's word, I don't know what I'd be, you know, how I'd live. You know, and I understand. It could get too busy. You know, but, you know, I came from a church where something was going on seven days a week you know, because it was so large that there were staff pastors teaching Bible studies in the, at lunch and, and e every evening, and then we had our Bible study. You know, it was a big church, and things were going on all the, all the time. They're, they're, prof they're asked to prophesy to cite, uh, deceits in verse 11. Get you out of the way, turn aside out of the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. So in other words, the people are saying, hey, turn away from God. Don't, don't look at God. Or don't look at the right God. I am amazed at how many people will say they're a Christian and then talk about a God that's not even a biblical God and a Jesus who's not a biblical Jesus. You know, and it's an amazing thing sometimes. You know, most people follow a God that would not punish sin for anything because he's all about love. You know, well, you know, God is love. He, you know, uh, talking to a gentleman today, and he was saying, you know, well, you know, God knows we can't be perfect. I go, I know he knows that we can't be perfect, but he still has a standard for us to, that he would like us to reach out to. Yes, he knows that we're not going to make it. And this is very important for us to understand. We cannot be perfect in this lifetime because our sin nature is going to get in the way. But God is saying, I want you to be holy like me. I want you to be as close to perfect as you're going to be able to do by letting me work through you. And here they're saying, you know, he's saying, your, your own people are telling you, prophets, you know, get out of our way. We, we want to go our own way. And if that doesn't, and that, we'll just leave God behind. And this is what the Jews kept doing over and over again. They kept turning away from God, going into idol worship. And it would be so strange, and, they, and the Jews still do it to this day. You know, well, we're not following God, but God gave us the land. We're not following God, but we're God's people. The Jews still do that to this day. They don't even believe in God you know, for the most part, and yet they'll tell you that they're, that they're God's people and that they're living in the land that God gave them but they don't really believe in God. 
But the schizophrenia that we can go through when we try to live in both worlds, the world with the spiritual world and the, and the world's world, can really get to us. You know, God, I, I want to do things your way, but I keep doing it this way. And Paul really talked about that in, in Romans. He said, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Oh, woe is me. You know, uh, because that is the battle we go through as Christians. There's a battle in us constantly between doing things God's way and doing things the world's way. And how do we get to do things the God's way? We spend time in the word. We memorize the word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, the, the psalmist says. You know, do we put his word in our heart? Do we think about his word? The more we think about his word, the less schizophrenia we're going to have in this division between the world and the flesh. The more we feed the spirit in God's side, the, the more we're going to make godly decisions. And this is important for us because I've shared with you, we are fleshly beings. The first instinct we're going to have in our brain will be the world's way of doing it. Always. The question is, how fast does God's way come into our brain? The more we are, have been changed by him, the more we're in his word, the closer we're walking with him, the faster his spirit will come in to the point where it might seem like we never even had the, you know, the, world, the worldly thought because we just automatically get, you know, we have a sec, split second of the world's thought and then God's thought comes in. That is where it's perfect. Now, will, how will you get there? You will in certain areas of your life that you turn over to God. There are certain areas of my life where I'm pretty much, the world's view does not pop into my head that much. God's word pops in fast. There's other areas where I'm not even close to that happening. And each one of us are going to be in that same place where there may be something where you're going, God, it's not even a, not even a choice. For me, it's not a choice of do I go to church. And it's not just because I was a pastor. This is where you talk to my kids. This is always the way it's been. Sunday morning, we're going to church. Sunday night, if I wasn't working, when I was working, especially in the restaurants, we went to church. Wednesday night, we went to church. It wasn't even a mind, you know, a thought in my mind that, you know, how, the only reason I would not be there, basically, if I was at the hospital. <laughs> That's about the only thing that really kept me away from going to church. Because even when I went on vacations, we'd go to church, at least Sunday morning. It was just what we did, who we were, and my devotion to being with God's people. Now, is that what God's called every single person to do? No. But what has God called you to do? Be very honest with what he's called you to do and say, God, I want to do it completely. It's amazing to me, no matter what I read in the Bible in the morning, is what I need for that day to get me through the day. To answer whatever comes my way, to make my decisions. Usually whatever I read that day is exactly what I need to talk to somebody about, to make my decisions with. And it's amazing the, the love of God and the presence of God that he, that he uses on this. Um, verse 12 says, Therefore, saith the, Lord, the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in the oppression and perversion and stay thereupon, therefore this iniquity shall be to you as a breach ready to fall, swelling out in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. Because you want to live this way, you want to live without me, there's this hole in your wall. It's ready to be broken at any time. 
And this is why people have this false idea everything's going good, I'm doing really well, I'm doing really well, and then they're surprised when suddenly everything falls apart. And God says, I told you the crack was there. You know, it's like looking at a dam, you know, a great big dam that, that's protecting the, the city and there's this crack going up. Ah, well, it hasn't broken yet, it's not going to break, it's not going to break, it's not going to break, or, you know, and it breaks. Or a, a crack in your window. Ah, it's no big deal, it's only a small crack. You know, especially around here with 100 degree weather, the next thing you know, that crack has crossed your whole, your whole win window. You know, and now you have to buy the whole window instead of just patching it. <laughs> we see this so often that God is saying, it's there, the cracks are there. Don't ignore them. You don't want to pay attention to me? I'm gonna let the crack just come apart. When we're following him, he patches up those cracks. He fixes them up. He strengthens us. And this is so important for us. And then he goes, just as an interesting, he goes in verse 14, and he shall break it as the breaking of the potter's vessel that is broken in pieces, he shall not spare, so that there shall not be found in the bursting of it a sword to take fire from the hearth or to take water out of the pit. So he says, God's going to break the vessel into such small pieces that you can't even take the, a piece of it to take the coals out of the, out of the, out of the hearth or to even pull water. Because all you're going to do is have tiny pieces. Now, God can take those tiny pieces and do something with them. But God says, if you really want to follow away from him, your world will be worthless. Nothing will be there. And again, we, we go back to those people we think have everything and seem okay, their world has been shattered into pieces. There's not, they don't have anything to hold on to. And we've been there ourselves probably, usually before we're Christians, we've been there. That's usually what brings us to God. My whole world is shattered. I have nothing to hold on to and go, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't have, nothing is working for me. I don't have anything to hold on to. And God says, all right, now, now you're where I want you. You're ready to turn to me. And God's going to say to the people, I'm going to destroy everything. You know, their, their trust was in Jerusalem. Remember, we've talked about this many times. Their trust was in Jerusalem. This is God's city. It's got God's temple in it. He'll never let it fall as he let it fall. Samuel's day, Eli, uh, Eli's sons go out with the Ark of the Covenant. If we take the Ark of the Covenant out to battle, it, it will not, nobody will be able to beat us because God is in our presence as they lose the battle and the Ark of the Covenant goes to the enemy. No. We need to be careful. What is our trust in? Is it truly in God or is it in something that we think is spiritual even? That could be very interesting. Is my trust in God or is my trust in going to church? Is my trust in God or reading my Bible every day? Is my trust in God or, or my job that God provided for me? And it can be very in, easy. Every, you know, most everything I said there is a good thing and should lead to God. But is my trust in what I'm doing and what's happening or is it in God? And this is very important for us. Not to trust the things, not to trust the gifts. And a lot of times church and, and, and Christians will chase after God's gifts thinking they're, they're the wonderful thing. That was the church in Corinth that uh, Paul wrote to. 
They were chasing after the gifts. God, give us the gift of healing. Give us the gift of tongues. Give us this gift. Give us that gift. If we've got the gifts, everything is, everything is good. And they weren't seeking God. They were just seeking the gifts of God. And we want to be very careful. What is our hope in? What am I looking for? You know, and it can be very edgy when we start looking at the good things that come when we follow God and we start following after what comes from following God rather than God himself. We're to seek the giver, not the gifts. We're to seek the blesser, not the blessings. And because we can get wrapped up in the gifts, the gifts and the blessings and forget about the giver of them. And very important because that's what God says. He says, I want to destroy everything. You're going to have nothing to hold on to. Nothing to get the water out. Nothing to get the fire out. What are you looking at? Who's who are you trusting? Verse 15. For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall you be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall you be strengthened, and you would not. But you said, No, we will flee upon the horses, therefore shall you flee, and we will ride upon the swift, therefore you shall, they that pursue you, sh pursue you be swift. A thousand shall flee for the rebuke of one, and at the rebuke of five you, shall you flee, till you be lift as a beacon upon the top of a mountain, and as an ensign on the hill, and, and therefore will the Lord wait, and he, that he may be gracious unto you, therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you, for the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are they that wait for him. So here we are back to this picture of God saying, wait. Wait on him. And, uh, you know, it says, verse 15, and I love this, for thus saith the Lord God of Israel, in returning and rest shall you be saved. In quietness and confidence shall you, shall you be Strength, shall be your strength and you wouldn't have it. How many times do we just rush about? God, I need this to happen. I need it to happen now and you're not making it happen now so I'm going to make sure it happens. I'm going to do whatever it is that I can do to make it happen. And then we regret those decisions down the road because they have long-term consequences. Now, and God says, just come back. Rest. Listen to what I'm saying. Don't go down to Egypt. Stay here in Egypt, like I to, uh, in, in Jerusalem, like I told you, and I will protect you. But they're going, we're going to go. We're, we're, we're going, God. We're going to do what we want to do. Been there, done that way too many times. God, I'm going to do it my way. God, what did you make me get? Why did you let me get into such a mess? I've been usually smart enough not to blame God for my messes because I know they're my messes when I get into those messes. But you know, the world doesn't look at it that way. I hear it all the time. Why would God let such and such happen? Why did God do that? Well, it might have something to do with your decisions and where, where you went to. And he goes, just rest. He goes, but you say, no, we will flee upon the horses. And he says, therefore, you shall flee. We will ride on the swift. And he goes, and God says, your enemies will be just as swift. God does not let us run from our our problems. He does not let us get away. When he pursues us, it is just as swift or swifter than anything that we have. We think we're getting away from the problem, and God says, nope, 
you're, it's going to follow you. It is going to catch you. And we need to be very much aware of this. The more we're aware that we can't run from God's judgment, the better, the easier it is just to sit back and wait. My dad always said, you know, if you just tell the truth and you take your punishment, it's a lot less than if I have to go catch you and, 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 and find you. Because now you're in trouble for lots of things. You know, and I understand that principle. Even as a manager, okay, just tell me what happened. Don't try to hide it. Don't make it, don't make it worse. And it's been said, you know, when I played sports, the person who retaliated was always the one that got caught. You know, somebody got smacked upside the head on, you know, on a play, and as soon as they swung back, they're the one that got caught. They're the one that got, you know, and usually, I, I was a referee. It was like, did I see something over there? And you're kind of looking, and then you catch the person retaliating because you caught something out of the corner of your eye. And it always happens that way. God says, don't try to flee. Just be quiet. Stay quiet. Be restful. You know, he says, when you're, when you're running, verse 17, a thousand shall flee at the rebuke of one, and at the rebuke of five shall you flee. And this is kind of an interesting twist. He goes, you, as a spiritual person, will be able to rebuke a thousand, and they will flee. But you will flee at five when you're not resting in God. And this is very interesting. When we are bold with God, he gives us the strength. He gives us the uh, uh, wisdom and the, the strength to be able to stand up for him. You know, we see somebody like a Stephen being stoned. Why was he stoned? Well, he, he gave a message they didn't want to hear about how stubborn they were and how stiff-necked they were and how they did it to Moses and how they killed Jesus and how he rose again. And they decided they were going to stone him. They were rebuked by one. Probably not thousands at that point, but hundreds. And he ended up in a pit being stoned. And even there, he looked up and he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And that really angered them. And they got really brutal. But he says, And you shall flee till you be left a beacon upon the top of a mountain as an ensign on a hill. You know, God will sometimes isolate us so that we stand out for him. A beacon, a light, a light on the top of the hill, or an ensign, which is a flag. He says, if you're really my children, I'm going to keep isolating you until you're going to stand out. You're going to be seen. You're going to be noticed. And it's an amazing thing as you look at somebody who is a Christian and they make a series of bad decisions and bad decisions and they fall and then all of a sudden God gets hold of them. And people look at them and saying, what, what is this? What, what's changed? Why are they different? God starts to shine through. And it's important for us to let God shine through in our life. Let him shine through in the words that we say, the things that we do, the way we act. And he's going to shine. He's going to keep stripping it away. He's going to strip away our flesh over and over again. And he keeps peeling it away and peeling it away. And we're going, God, I'll, I'll scratch the top skin off, but don't try to get underneath that. And God's saying, no, I want to get under the skin. And if we don't really try to help him, he'll take the knife, the surgical knife, and he'll say, let me help you get rid of this. Let me help you get rid of this flesh so I can shine through. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto, unto me. 
know, it, our testimony without Jesus is nothing. It's just a bunch of words. But when we go, look what God has done for me. Look how he has changed my life. And we point everything back to Jesus. That has power. That has a way of lifting up when they go, God has done this. And why is it so powerful? Because when you're talking to people, they know that they don't have the strength to be able to change their life, just as we know we don't have the strength to change our own life in reality for, for long-term change. But when we say, Jesus comes in and changes my life, he is the one that makes me able to do these things. I think about uh, the God's Dead 3 movie, out of, you know, Light Out of Darkness, where the pastor finally, at the end of the movie, realizes that he's fighting for something that's worthless and lifts up God. Lifts up God and everything changes. His whole heart changes. And then once his whole heart changes, he can then minister to other people. Oftentimes, God will put us through the ringer to get rid of what we think is important out of the flesh so that he can be exalted, that he can be lifted up. Looking at David with his sin with Bathsheba, when Nathan came to him and said, you are the man, and David finally repents. That doesn't get as much traction as it should, should with people, but what was the turning point in David's life? That repentance. Now he had consequences, major consequences for that sin that lasted the rest of his life. But he came to God and said, God, thank you. I've sinned against you and thank you for your forgiveness. Psalm 51 says, cleanse me and restore to me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. We go to God and say, cleanse me, renew me, renew me. And he renews us and people see that renewing to us and we go, oh God, thank you. I've got joy in my life. I've got peace in my life and people see it. You know, sometimes that's the greatest testimony people see when they see that, oh, this person really messed up, but wow. They're, they're saying God did it, but look at that joy and peace they seem to have. You know, and they want it. They want that kind of stuff. And we can't manufacture it. We cannot manufacture it on our own. It takes God to come out of us, and that makes us a beacon on the hill. People look at us and say, wow. I, I want what you have. That is the ultimate thing. We give them, we provoke them to envy for what we have. And in that particular case, it's a good envy. They want God. That's a good envy to have if they're wanting God. And then in verse 18 says, And therefore will, you, will the Lord wait that he may be gracious upon, unto you, and therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you, the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are they that wait on him. And I love this first part. Therefore, the Lord will wait. Do you ever picture the Lord waiting for us? Just waiting for us to return. Now, when we return, he's just like the prodigal father, waiting for his son to return, and as soon as he sees the son, running out to the son to greet him, because he's looking. While he's waiting, he's looking. God is waiting for us. And he'll pursue us. The funny thing is, you know, we find that when we're out there running from God, we, we run right into God. Yeah. And it's an amazing thing. We're running away from God, and there he is. 
And it's like, God, what are you doing here? Well, I'm here waiting for you. And we run the other direction and we run right into God. God, what are you doing here? I'm waiting for you. Elijah ran away 400 miles away and there he found God waiting for him. Now go back to where you're supposed to be and I'll be waiting for you when you get back there. We run for God, from God before we become a Christian and what do we do? We run into God. Everywhere we go, we run into God and he's waiting. He's not in a panic, he's not, he's not in a hurry, he's just waiting. And we get there and it says, why is he waiting? That he may be gracious. I love this picture of God, that he is gracious. You know, I know that God punishes sin. I know that he'll send those, to, those who reject Jesus Christ to hell. But he wants to be gracious. He's waiting to be gracious, to give gifts. You know, uh, and you know, that's one of the greatest things that we have even in our own life is giving to people. There's where great joy happens, but God is, and that's part of being like God. God is there saying, I'm here. I, I have gifts for you if you would just stay right here. I want to be gracious to you. And then it says, and therefore will he be exalted. God gives gifts and he gets exalted for it. If we remember where those gifts come from, we give him all the credit. Look what God has done for me. Look what God has done. And we exalt him and he gets lifted up and by lifting him up, he gives us mercy and he is drawing more people to him. And his mercy is to not get what we deserve because we're lifting him up. You know, do you see the power of this verse? God is waiting for us so he can be gracious to us so that he can be exalted. So that as he's exalted, as we exalt him and give him the glory, he gives us mercy. Starts out with grace. Getting what we don't deserve and then ends with not getting what I deserve. His mercy. You know, the power of those words being combined in this sentence is exactly what we look. God is gracious to us. We respond to that grace and get saved and come to him, and then he gives us mercy. You know, what a wonderful plan that he has. Why does he do this? For God is a God of judgment. Blessed are they that wait upon him because they get mercy. Without waiting on him, you end up getting the judgment because you never get to the grace. Never turn to him and gaze into his eyes and come into his arms because I'm always running, always running always running. Now for the lost, that means they're running straight into hell because they never stop and meet the graciousness of God and then get his mercy. For us as Christians, it means that we don't get to live in the blessings that we should be having. You know, the children of Israel walked in the wilderness for 40 years because they did not want to walk into the victorious life of the promised land. How many times do we as Christians wander in the desert murmuring and complaining because God is only providing our needs. And God says, here we are at the Jordan, step across. <laughs> nope, God, don't want it. There's giants over there. There's problems over there. But yeah, there's lots of good food there. But nope, nope, not going to do it. I'll just wander around in the desert a little longer, thirsty and hungry because you're meeting my minimal needs. And he brings us back to the Jordan and said, are you ready to cross over now? Look at all that great fruit over there and the green grass and lush land. And I'll protect you from the giants. Nope, God, I'm going to wander in the desert for a while. 
most Christians spend their entire life wandering in the wilderness desert, just barely surviving spiritually because they're afraid to go into the promised land and live victoriously. You know, I love Caleb. You remember, you remember who Caleb is? Joshua and Caleb both went into the promised land and, and they, they said, we've got a good report. Caleb, when it was time to give the land, said, I want that hill over there. It's got giants in it. The guy's 80 years old almost, and he says, I want that land over there. It's got giants in it, and God's going to give me that land, and he's going to defeat those giants. What a wonderful guy. He, he understood what it, was me, what it meant to live in the spiritual blessings of God and say, yeah, I want that. I want, I want what God's going to show, you know, I want to see God work. Is that our attitude? I want to, God, I want to see you work. I want to see what you can do. I want to see great blessings. I want to see wonderful things. And I'm hoping, again, we go back to this idea for prayer. I want to see our church grow from this as we see salvations. I want to see people get on fire for God. I want to see revival in Chloride, Kingman, Mojave County, the whole of the state of Arizona. I don't know if it will go that far, but I'd love to see revival, and I'd like to see it start here. And I know there's other pastors that are in that same boat, but I would love history to go and America had its third great awakening, and it started in Chloride, Arizona. Now, I keep thinking you could interest so little while Chloride's little, but we can have it Stockbridge, Massachusetts is not a big town. It's a bit bigger than, than Chloride, but it's not a big town, and it's, the second great awakening started there. Oh, really? Yeah. It started in a very small place in, in, in uh, western Massachusetts. Uh, but what can happen? You know, who knows? Am I guaranteeing that we'll have a revival? No, but you know, I look at the history and say, God, what can you do with a group of people praying for revival? Praying for souls. Praying for a miracle to happen. And we still have a miracle going on in northern Scotland where the two little ladies prayed for a revival and it's still having impact in that area. All right? never know what's going to happen. Never know what will happen when we pray and lift God up and let him, let him move. Let him, let him go forward. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love us. Lord, we ask you to help us learn to wait upon you, to be silent and see you work. Lord, if there's anybody that listens to this message and that doesn't know you, we hope that they will admit that they're a sinner and turn to you for forgiveness of their sins because, Jesus, you died for their sins and you hold out that gift for them. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.